0: And this is Datacast. Join me for our conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversations with practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Kapil Wang, partner at Shopify Ventures, he focused primarily on security, enterprise infrastructure, and data analytics. He is a board director and observer at JumpCloud, Tetrit, Optics, Ferbit, and Zesty. In addition to that, he works closely with the team at CircleCI, Sepress, Dreamio, Rivetschera, Site, StackHawk, and Tospot. In 2020, business insider listed Gasper as an enterprise vc reaching investor. Prior to Shafar, he was part of the technology investment banking group at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Where he worked on a number of high-profile IPO and M&A transaction. He also spent time at with a leading mobile commerce platform in North America and Europe. So, with that introduction, Casper, glad like to have you on the show.
2: Thanks for having me, James.
1: Fabulous. I want to start our conversation a little bit with your personal background. While doing the homework for our chat, I discovered that you were originally from Wuhan, China. And then you moved to the U.S. to pursue an undergrad degree in business at UC Berkeley. Would you mind sharing any formative experiences of your bringing, as well as your overall academic experience at uh, UC Berkeley?
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Obviously, I I grew up in Wuhan and nobody knew about the city before 2020. And now I became, I would say, favorite slash infamous. And then I I think talk about formative experience. I, I couldn't think of one or two really strong formative experiences, but I would say just the decision to come to the States for my own grass study was probably a key point in my life where I just decided to pursue a different route back in high school and didn't realize the lifelong implications that I would have on my life. And yeah, that was the leap of faith moment for me to just being able to come here and pursuing my undergrad study at, at UC Berkeley. And before I came to Berkeley, I didn't really know much about technology at all. That was not my passion. I wanted to be a history major, big history buff here. But I think my time at Berkeley, just around the 2010, 2011 era when I rode, it coincided with the rise of consumer internet. Companies like DoorDash, Uber, Lyfts sort of the world came out of why Combinator, or or other started programs, and that was a fascinating time because that was the first time when you have a pretty consumerized modern cloud native experience, right? On your end browser or your end mobile phone, and I was always more interested. I would say more on the infrastructure side of okay, how things work generally on the back end versus. is Uber live better? I would say uh, because for me, really. It's the consumer experience side. I, I experienced good consumer experience when I experienced it, but couldn't tell, couldn't really find patterns behind it. But for me, what's really interesting is just seeing how things work on the back end. From an academic experience perspective, I would say, there's not a lot of things I would say like really jump out right away. I would say things I'd done outside of the classroom, looking at my startup, working on internships and whatnot. Those probably left a bigger mark on my undergrad experience.
1: Yep, so Yeah. Thanks for sharing the details of how you get to the U.S. and that early interest in technology as you get there. So you mentioned a little bit about kind of some of your activities outside of the classes that you got involved with, right? And in particular, you were pretty involved with the startup scene at Berkeley and you co-part of the startup called Edge.ai, which is personal CRM company incubated. Berkeley static. And after you that you also spent some time returning at Wish, which is a leading mobile commerce platform. How did this engagement affect your Berkeley experience?
2: Yeah, totally. I would say those are two very different experiences, right? First of all, I can probably go one by one. The atch side really was it's just such a great experience that I feel like I wouldn't have gotten it um, anywhere in my life had I not really tried so hard to do it. Right. I was probably missing classes and and doing a lot of things outside of the classroom to focus on the startup. And you mentioned that the idea is really a personal CRM where let's say I, I come here going podcast, I can get right away what are the three or four suggested topics that I want to talk about, right? So it's almost like a marriage between superhuman and the superhuman co-founders prior to start it's coming up Reportive That actually is a Gmail add-on that pulls LinkedIn information or website information about a certain person before you chat with people. I, I would say my takeaways from that experience is one, starters are really hard, right? I think you can go get funding, you can go get all those awards, but at the end of the day, if you build a product that put on an app store and you can't really achieve exit velocity, it, it doesn't really work, right? So I would say it's extremely hard. And my co-founders actually ended up dropping down to Berkeley I did myself to work on this for another year before I let it go. But I think my biggest takeaway is like, hey, founders in general are working on something that's extremely hard and naturally the odds are stacked against you. So I think it helps me to understand how hard it is. helps me today as VC to just have a bit more, I think, empathy fa- for the founder. I think that's probably one. Secondly, I think I didn't realize back then, but this is, BDC sort of story, which later on in my career, I would say that's where I spend more time is actually on the 2B side of things versus direct-to-consumer, right? So those are probably my two biggest takeaway uh, from, from that experience, beyond the fact that I just got to know a lot of people in Valley. And it's just really when people complain about all the problems in San Francisco and and whatnot, I think one of the biggest things in Silicon Valley that I learned you know, over time or doing this experience was really, you can always go and ask somebody for something. And with no reason, this person would give you at least five to 10 minutes of their time. Again, I'm not saying that's a silver bullet. You should always go find. But in general, in value, I would say that's something that's really beautiful. It's this whole paid forward culture. You just willing to spend time and effort with somebody who has no relation with you uh, before. And I met some really great people throughout the process. They're investors, entrepreneurs and, and whatnot. That's also, I would say, like another meta point I, I got from that experience. So, yeah, so that's the, the edge side of the story. And on a wish, uh, internship side of the story, it's just being part of a very explosive startup. It's quite interesting. Right. So. Wish, for folks who, don't, who are not familiar with the story, they basically are a mobile e-commerce platform. They import goods, mostly from East Asia, China, Korea, Japan, uh, and sell it to the audience in the U.S., right? Because there's a mismatch. If end-consumer, there's certain category of goods that are very hard to come by, right, on Amazon, per se, right? Let's say you want a leather jacket. You can only go to some some big city malls to get it uh, for a very high price, uh, or you can get it from a platform like Wish, uh, which is really mobile e commerce oriented. I think my experience is like during my time there, we probably grew from around fifty person startup to to almost like three hundred three fifty so just being able to see the whole change of a rocket ship being part of it and witnessing that that whole growth and seeing the impact and strain opportunities and challenges that growth create for the whole organization just left a pretty big mark on me but also like for me it's also just understanding the exponential nature of technology right i remember being assigned different tasks right one day on this floor the other day on a on a different floor when we moved office just in the span of three months um, i think those really left a pretty big mark on my career, just on my thinking and, and on my ambitions around technology.
1: Absolutely, yeah, thanks for writing that detailed answer. You mentioned one one point that I, I found pretty interesting is because of that experience working on SAI, you, you later on probably focused on B2B instead of B2C, right? Can you maybe shed some light on that? Like what is like the main differences and challenges? of work doing direct to consumer and what do you think is doing enterprise and easy not like easy but like a better approach from an investing partner yeah
2: Yeah, i would say broadly speaking i think there's no again there's no bad or good or or big or small right there are general patterns for example you don't see a b2b company goes from zero to 10 million users overnight versus two seeds sometimes it happens obviously we've gotten more saturated over time. I would say like generally, broadly speaking, I think the biggest point for me is there are just more control points from a business model perspective on a B2B business model versus the B2C model. There are generally a lot of patterns and some great people have written books on this. And there's some really good VCs in the Valley who've done this, right? Bill Gurley has his own theory around marketplaces and whatnot. But in general, it's just, it's a little harder to come by, a little bit more elusive, is my sense. And again, there's no right or wrong here. Some people like the nature of finding solutions to a problem and spend a lot of time running the discovery. It's like the artist creation process. I would say that's probably closer to B C versus to be I joke with people, it's like chicken, right? It's like how people cook chicken in the US. You fry it, you steam it, you like you put it in a pen, you, you put it in a, in a barbecue oven, it can come out the same once you cut it open. So it has more of a playbook feel to it, which personality-wise, it just fits my personality a little bit more, I would say.
1: Yeah. Thanks so highlighting that, that dis- distinction. Now, after graduating from college, you... I spent about two years working in investment banking group at Merrill Lynch as an analyst, doing a lot of engagement with different high profile IPO and M&A transactions. And I believe that about two years there, you joined the investment team in Software Ventures in early 2018, where you focused primarily on security, enterprise infrastructure, and data and analytics. So, my question is twofold. First, uh, can you just talk about uh, your two years working in investment banking at Merrill Lynch? And then, secondly, what motivated you to make that career transition from IB to, into VC?
2: Yeah, totally. I would say the banking experience. Like, I'm probably more accidental. I told you about the startup. Had it worked out really nicely, I probably wouldn't have pursued this path. And I think, like a lot of undergrads coming out of college, there's just a feeling of okay, I don't know what I wanted to do, uh, sort of thing, and this is. A cool job, at least from outside. That's literally why I I, I picked that. I think, uh, from a learning perspective, I, I definitely learned a ton. Not only some of the skills around just things around like how to read your financial statements uh, and whatnot, but also just airtime with uh, management, right? Because on the investment banking side, you work with much more mature companies companies who are ready to go IPO, companies who are ready to go through an M&A process, whether it's buying or selling. So you're seeing the cream of the crop uh, out of all you know companies, right? Like among all startups who move to the finish line. So I think being able to see patterns, again, it's very high level. You don't really get the operational detail, but seeing high level patterns, understanding certain things, high level market trends, products, but also like, just understand the finance side of the equation, the number side of the equation really well, I think that's probably my biggest learning from that experience. And in, in regards to the transition from best banking to venture, my story was I was lucky enough to be on the IPO of MuleSoft and MuleSoft turned out to be a big position of Sapphire Ventures. And that's how I got to know the Sapphire folks. And, and one thing led to another, right? Uh, from a motivation perspective, I'd say from out, outside, of, I would say there are two reasons, right? One is I always liked the technology side of things a little bit more than the finance side of things, although both sides are fascinating to me. So I wanted to be in a place where I'm a little closer to the company growth journey versus you just send somebody off, right? Um, and I think secondly, this is probably more of a, small distinction I, I learned hindsight 2020 that I have an intuition for, but I didn't, I couldn't really illustrate the, the exact difference, but now I think I could is I want to be in a job where I'm a bit more accountable for the output or the outcome of something versus the input. Right. What do I mean by that is when you are a junior person in investment banking, like your job is to put together certain mammals or research or pitch books or if a company goes public, you attending drafting sessions, you're writing S1s and whatnot. But the more the story is you are the middleman, right? You don't really have a hand in how this would would come up. And you judge by the quality of your work, meaning the quality of what you ride and what you do. And it's it could be subjective, right? It depends on whether your clients like it, you know, whatnot, what not, versus venture, I think, again, I'm not saying that's what you do on day one, but you are more accountable for the output because over time, you're going to be in a position where you advocate for your own deals and the success and failures with deals are your scorecard, right? For better or worse. And I think that part, again, it's probably higher upside, higher downside, but I just like the part about being accountable for my output a little bit more. And Again, I didn't fully appreciate this point when I joined venture, but I think that's something looking back that probably, in some shape or form, prompted me to make a career change here as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Basically, really like having more skin in the game, right, in the decision and and choice that you have to make, right?
2: Yeah, having more skin in the game and, and whatnot, and we can go into all the conventional reasons why people like venture capital, right? But I think those are probably my you know, more unique angles.
1: For sure. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, give me advice for analysts from investment banking who want to make the lift into venture capital and and get more involved in the the tech industry in general.
2: Yeah. I, I think the tech industry point, I would say now tech, especially like in San Francisco, I don't think I met anybody who is doing something that has nothing to do with tech. Exaggeration, but that's true. I think coming to tech is now there's so many avenues, right? It's just you got to find out where you want to be from a risk-reward culture environment standpoint. And I would say the golden rule of thumb is just make sure that you're in an environment where you like the people there. I think that's the most important thing is people always talk about, okay, on a rocket ship, don't really care about your role or title. Just get on that rocket ship, right? I think there's truth to it because I feel like the people, the quality people, whether you like it, them or not, like, I think that's probably the most important thing, in my opinion. And then going to the tech industry, there's so many companies out there. I'm sure people are right-wing guys on this. That's a super hard leap, per se. On a venture side, it is more of an obscure in- industry, I would say, from an entry standpoint. Although nowadays, it's I think the, the means provide a little bit more through different TV shows or, or people running walks and whatnot, I would say it's a little bit more unstructured, uh, but I think whenever you can offer better, one, some sort of hard entry-level skills around finance or or technology, and two, I think just showing the intellectual curiosity to learn and to hustle for certain things, I think that's probably the best way to knock on the door, right? I remember when I was back in college, I did an internship at, at an early stage VC firm, and I had to send out 300, emails for a couple of calls, which led to the job. And now I look back, that's your process as a junior VC to hunt for deals, right? Because you're not going to just sit here and companies show up and knock on your door, right? Now there's just so much capital around the table that you have to really go out there and, and find what you wanted. So, in some part, the recruiting process is an audition for, for, the, for the real job, which is like there's no book on how to get in venture capital. Like it's really just the process of discovery and finding out more about yourself, but also more about just doing the job.
1: Yeah, I think that part about acquiring relevant skill set is pretty important. I think like, I'm sure from that experience working in, in banking, you, you acquire that basic financial skill. And then First from your experience at Berkeley, a lot of passion for technology and kind of marinettos too, like a good entrance for venture capital. And uh, can you share a little bit about Shopify Ventures as well? Like in terms of the firm in general, some focus and jaw focus and what do you choose to focus?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sapphire Ventures, from a high level perspective, we manage about 10 billion today, investing in our latest two billion dollar fund. So. I would generally call as a growth stage VC, meaning the company has some product market fit, and they have a small sales team in place, and usually, and it's not just founders, not just James making calls and calling his friends about buying certain software, but there's a repeatable sales book, right? That's where we show up and put more fuel on fire, generally, I, I would characterize it and boiling down to... The round label perspective, we probably do anything between a Series B all the way up to a pre-IPO uh, company. And that's generally how we operate and we take a pretty concentrated approach, right? So we have around 82, 83 active portfolio companies at any given time, really, and against the 10 billion you have. So I think that's how we generally roll. Instead of just spray and pray, we we run a pretty concentrated picking approach. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the high level on a firm side from an investment focused perspective. The group is really B2B focused. So I think that the three main focuses are B2B infrastructure, which is where I generally spend on one time in, B2B application, uh, and also um, a little bit of FinTech, healthcare, IT and whatnot. But we generally try to focus more on the B2B side of things or B C side of things. Comes like Square, LinkedIn's mm-hmm.
1: role. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for providing that context. You mentioned a little bit about this earlier about you know, the, the job, of new VC new firm, but yeah, like for you personally, as a new investor at firm, how to you put your value upfront in potential deals and start farming your own investment pieces?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, there, there are a couple of things, right? I think one is just being able to do the job, do the work, right, of folks ask you to do. I think this job is still very much an apprentice job, right? So you don't just show up day one and know and, and understand everything, right? Somebody has to show you a rope. But in the process, you do the, the work this person or this group of people assigned you to do, right? This could be creating a mess memo, conducting due diligence on a deal, finding out about certain things about a company, stuff like that. I think the first way to do this is just really, really just bury your stripes, like a better word, and do really great work, right? Create original work. I think once I got a pretty good sense of what this job is about, I'm happy to boil it down, right? Because like, when you look at the VC job, it's really matched to the funnel, right? You have sourcing on, on this side of things, sourcing on, on as a first step. And then after you source a company, it's, doing diligence, right? Okay, is this going to be worth the time? Are the customers real? Is there a real market for this? And then the third step is really winning, right? Like why you? Why Sapphire? Why not some other VC firm? And the fourth part is portfolio support, right? So those are the board level work. How do you go in recruit a CRO, CMO for your portfolio company kind of thing? So those are the four steps. And I would say like when you first enter, you probably spend more time on the diligence side and some on the sourcing side. And as you build out your portfolio and as you build out your, your profile, then you become the person to go win the deal and the puck stops with you, right? And you are the person who the CEO calls once you made investment about their problems. So I think that's generally how the job is mapped out, and I would say early on, it's really about doing a great job on building inside and surfacing new insights and be a thought partner to the more senior investors. And later on, it just, lots of places you can show value based on the four stages you yes. mentioned.
1: Yeah, thanks for conceptualizing yeah. that. That's a different stage to fund the last I of an investment opportunity. You talked a bit about a sourcing deal and doing due um, diligence, and so I definitely want to investigate a couple of your most notable investment is Shopify, because that's like the next part of, of that process about winning deals, right? In the domain of security, you invest in the Series F route of Club and the Series B route of Optics. So what are some of the key factors that trigger you to make this investment?
2: Yeah, totally. I think the two man you mentioned. For us, right, at least different ends of barbell, right? Cloud is more of a mature company, true growth stage, probably a couple of years away from IPO and uptakes from when I got involved is a smaller, right? Like very much early growth company, good product market fit, but they were figuring a lot of things out. So probably on both ends of the barbell. I generally would say the stage where I got involved in uptakes is generally where we have the second or third touch point, right? We probably met them at series A, but that's where we generally make an early bet versus the jump cloud side of things is where I've already known the CEO for three years, three and a half years, probably before the investment. And for all kinds of reasons, didn't get involved early on. And and when they hit the certain milestones, and thresholds, we just internally were like, hey, we, we have to get involved here kind of thing. Just from a matter point perspective, best investment patterns from a pure investment perspective, I'd say, you know, jump cloud is a pretty classic kind of product led growth. This word that's somehow now super famous PLG company. It's a directory plus identity solution for the lower end of the market. Think about your SMB or your mid market cloud native companies who need an identity solution, right? Like an Okta, and also need a device management solution, like a jam for one. And, and, and you also need a, a password directory, right? Like a, a Microsoft Active Directory. The thing is, if you're an SMB or middle market company, it doesn't make sense for you to go to five different vendors to procure five different needs. Right. And all of them are more enterprise solutions. So you're going to pay a pretty high price for those. Why don't you just go to Jamf Cloud and buy the entire thing, right? And. From a thesis standpoint, I generally call this kind of a rebundling of tooling on SMB and middle market side. And that's what I think generally now we're years into the golden age of SaaS. Mm-hmm. Now there's so many tools that are addressing all kinds of pain points for the enterprise and on the si- SMB side, the fragmentation doesn't make as much sense, right? Because you don't have a IT team that's going around different trade shows to procure solutions. And you don't have the budget to buy five different tools. So I think that's where you see companies like John Cloud more on IT side or certain companies on HR side or sales and marketing side that start we bundle five, six different functions into one platform solution for the SMB audience and grow the company. So I think that's the big thesis behind it. Mm-hmm. And on the uptake side of things, again, when we got involved is a lot earlier comparatively from a revenue threshold perspective. What I really like is, so they're based on an open source security solution that came out of Facebook. It's called OS query. And what I really like about this is you can really build a platform solution on top of OS query, right? The, the broad point about security is it's really easy to start this layer cake approach, meaning People really don't rip anything out in security because you're just, your mind says, like, hey, how do I buy more solutions to cover more things? And sort of industry point is, Hey, okay, how do we have more point solutions to address different point paints? Right. And from a commercial standpoint, that lends to a point of huge fermentation, right? Go to different trade shows like ours, say, like a black hat, there's a thousand vendors and. 200 of them are going after the same problem. Obviously, kind of exaggeration, but that's a pretty, pretty unique problem, I would say, to security. So, what we try to do is really try to find platform solutions where people could standardize their stack on security stack on at least one part of their operations. In the case of uptakes, I think what I saw was really great early momentum from a logo standpoint, right? Lots of great cloud native. Logos adopting the solution and really invest a lot of resources, not only from a money perspective, uh, but also from a people perspective, right? You're putting on 10, 20, your, your entire SOC team on this solution. So to me, that's a good sign of early sign of people batting on the platform potential of this company. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's how I got involved on the optics. Yeah. Thanks for investment
1: yeah talking about those details and generally speaking I, I think I believe that besides those two investments you also have other investment on, on security companies as well like StackHawk or OwnPackUp for instance In at, at high level because we are talking about those security as an industry do you see any just trends and how industry gonna evolve enterprise security can evolve in the upcoming years or so
2: yeah yeah I would say obviously now people are talking about a recession. I think security is probably the most resilient pocket. And I I do think we're going to keep seeing growth in the broader security span. But we all know the span is not going to grow equally. I think there's so many underlying trends behind it, but probably the biggest one that people don't appreciate is, and this is going to sound really obvious, but it's the rise of cloud, right? And we're so early into this cloud security journey, because broadly speaking, I think what happened was the big three cloud vendors really they showed up and, and they value prop early on to the developers like, hey, this is efficiency, right? That's where they really double down on and making sure people build things. And then we are at a point where there's critical data and critical applications that's built on the cloud, but we haven't really figured out a way to protect it. And so The reason why is because for the the big three cloud vendors, had they started design with critical security in mind, right? I'm not saying they they haven't thought about it at all, but had they started with that in mind, that's probably going to choke some of the innovation out of it, right? That's going to take away some of their revenue. So now we're at a point where, you know, the problems of security now lie back on the customers, people who build applications, who store data on top of the cloud. And there's huge implications to it because we're again, just so early in the journey, right? Some of the cloud security solutions that are flying really high right now. I think the problem they're solving and the biggest pain point they're solving today for the market, it's really visibility, right? Like where is your asset? Like where is your data? That's still the biggest thing that people care about, right? 10 years into the cloud journey. And that kind of speaks to how early you are in the journey, but also how big the opportunity is afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. we're not even in the production stage; we're just in the discovery visibility stage for the majority of vendors today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for highlighting that the rise the of the cloud and how that and the to enterprise security layers. It sounds like there's a lot of potential ways that new products may be able to figure out some of the vulnerabilities that you know this company. Will eventually suffer at some point in the future. So besides security, you also focus heavily on enterprise infrastructure. You let the Series B investment in Tetra and the Series A investment in Zesty. Uh, what about the, the products and the team of these two companies that resonate with you?
2: Yeah, I, I would say again, both are one earlier end of things. On the Tetris side, I think it's really the open source flavor by right? founders. JJ Edinburgh and Bruin, they have a lot of experience creating and maintaining this service mesh project, probably the most popular service mesh on the market called Istio, right? That came out of Google. And so it's bad that they could take this pretty low level project and one, really evangelize this project, right? And put it in the hands of more companies, but two, also start building applications on a, pretty foundational, low-level technology, right? So there are security applications, where more kind of network, telemetry, monitoring applications on top of it. So that's the big bet there. And then on the Zesty side of things, I think it's more of a cloud infrastructure management bet. People from the outside would call this cloud cost-saving company. Um, but for us, we really think of it as an infrastructure management company with cost saving being a killer use case, right? I think the company is going to keep pushing out a cost savings message, but underneath how they save your costs, it's a pretty complicated, complex infrastructure management process. And it doesn't hurt that we were a big investor in this company called Cloud Health. That's the exit to VMware, which I would call probably the generation one, right? First generation cloud cost management tool that's more of a dashboarding tool to the cfo versus in zesty's case i think they're more embedded to the engineering process right developer devops process which again there's pros and cons to both approach but in my opinion the more embedded you can to the whole software development life cycle Mm -hmm. the more sticky you are as a solution in general. So that's what I really like about them. And they've got a pretty good commercial value to the economic buyer, right? Again, CFO has been signed on the dot. And when this person saw the cost savings that came out of it, that makes it a pretty natural, easy buy for the end economic buyer here.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. The details of this investment? And yeah, we'll talk a bit about some of the stuff, draw leadership shipment that pops that on. Just, we talked about that mentioning, I think, yeah, like that cloud and DevOps investment are very interesting in general, but before that, the final domain that you focused on is data analytics and you led the series, the route of Dremio, a famous cloud data a lake house company in the market. Yeah. Can you share some of the details by this investment decision?
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, so Dremio is, to your point, cl- cloud data lake. Databricks call this term, Lakehouse Company, where you can point Dremio to your online data sources and run queries on it and procure data, right? So basically you can combine Dremio with the online data source. And effectively turn this into a data warehouse experience, right? You put BI tools on top of it. You run federated queries between two, three, four different sources, right? There's... I probably go on thirty minutes. and talk about the the intricate details behind every single one of this investment, but I think the bigger trend of what we learn is, at least from an enterprise perspective, there's not to be one repository for all your data. Right? Snowflake is a great company, and obviously the vision is having one data warehouse to serve all the purposes. Uh, but I think one thing people could always look at is the history of data. Right? Like you always have a ton of disparate data sources for good reasons, right? Because you're going to have data that's, you know, super high value, right? The regulated data that you're going to store in some on-prem air gap server, right? That today manifests itself in a different way in the cloud. You're going to have your cron jewel data, uh, like sales and marketing data, perhaps mostly sales data, I-, I would say some of your financial data that you really want and demand high performance on, that might go into a data warehouse, right? Cloud data warehouse. And the vast majority of data, like the click stream data, you go on a website, customers click on certain things or or certain event streaming data. To me and to us, the cost and benefit of that, the clear cutter, easy sort of source is probably going to be your cloud data lake, right? Like an S3 or any of the object storage is the natural destination for those kinds of data. So as a result, enterprises will need tools to, one, access those cloud data, build applications on top of it. Secondly, sometimes you need to run federated use cases, right? What if you need data from an S3, an RDS, right? What if you need to join two data streams and create some data applications? So those are the kind of use cases that Dremel powers, and I would say broadly speaking, it's really bad on the fact that there's always going to be disparate data sources existing in in the enterprise and for good reasons. Right. So. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting those uh, mental models that you use
1: as we talk about data-like and, and charges with data infrastructure technologies. Now, one thing that you mentioned earlier in our conversation is like up to that process winning deals. The final step at the stage is really portfolio support, right? Reflecting on your experience as a board member and a bot observer on the cap tables of a various growth stage companies, what advice have you given your portfolio companies in hiring decision and navigating growth strategy?
2: Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, pretty long question. I'll just take it from my own angle, right? I think we truly talk about CEOs, especially at a growth stage, just become chief recruiting officer, right? Because your goal is really try to attract and give leverage and provide leverage to the best and brightest talent that you can hire. So I think how do you maintain the culture? How do you get the best leaders in place? Um, That's at least 50% of the job of the CEO, right? Of the founder. And sometimes if you're a technical founder, if you're a founder that came from go-to-market, it's very hard to accept this concept, right? One day you were really cranking on the project and now you hit the growth stage. You have to spend 50% of the time interviewing people and courting independent board directors, getting the right talent. It's not as easy to transition as people think. I would say that's probably the biggest point. And I would say, secondly, is once you have those people in place, like how do you be demanding, but also supportive? to that team that you you build, right? What do I mean by that is you obviously want to put them on a sort of a high standard, but also like you want to be supportive and give them enough room to run, right? Because some of the best people you're going to hire are not going to be just order takers. They're not just going to go and fulfill the vision that you laid out exactly because they have their own blueprint in mind and they know what's best. So I think it, it's... The balance between like being a demanding leader, but also being a supportive leader is probably the hardest uh, balance to hit. And I think I would just say, make like another broader point is, as we see every day, founders are doing incredibly hard things, and empathy is hard to come by, right? Early on in my career, sometimes you see a number that didn't show up the way you wanted, and you had this immediate knee-jerk reaction to it to just react and ask the CEO, hey, what happened? But I think the important thing is sometimes what investors, what us, we care about has really nothing to do with what the founders care about, Right, the way they run a business, the way they look at metrics sometimes could be very different from the way investors look at metrics. So I think that's something that I keep reminding myself every day is just, how do I be supportive? How do I... Perform my fiduciary duty to be a good board member without overstepping and without kind of approving lack of empathy, right? So, those are probably the three points I would mention.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for highlighting those things. Transitioning to executive at the growth stage level, empathizing with the CEO and in metrics, and just different challenges of navigating to market in general. Those are the things that you, you're highlighting. Now, one thing that I really enjoy when, when doing research for this conversation is that you also open source a lot of your town leadership ideas in, in the public and you're in various articles on the industry that you focus on. So I want to cover some of the articles that are most relevant to join investments focus. Back in uh, August 2020, you wrote an in, in that piece about the three strategies that software companies can borrow from the open-source cloud playbook, namely resource-based pricing, intuitive product design, and go-to-market economics. So can you share some of the most important takeaway from that piece?
2: Yeah, I, I would say, look, I, I think it, the, the whole open-source landscape kind of played out as the block played out, right? Because today, you, you look at the newer open-source companies. Many of them try to just go straight to the SaaS or cloud stage, right? To just take away customers' problems and build out an open source cloud product versus the last gen of open source companies still start with more of an open core model of, hey, let me help you maintain your self hosted solution. Today it's really about how do we achieve cloud sooner than later, right? See those in some of the more public companies like MongoDB who talks about their Alice product, which is their hosted cloud product, almost exclusively. So I think the bigger trend is more and more open source companies going directly to cloud and SaaS on day one. I think the, the three points that you mentioned around resource-based pricing, uh, I think the other big takeaway from this article is how, how do companies make the end buyer and user become product aware, right? which is important, right? Because we always talk about this point about product led I think it's actually incredibly to be a product lad company, right? Because look, if you're selling databases or if you're selling a security solution, your end user is not going to use your product as if it's Calendly or for some collaboration tool, right? Because it, it it is what it is, right? If I were a developer at a company, I love this database. I'm not going to implement it by myself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think... Uh, A thing that people could take away is just how do you become product aware, as you know, for for the end user, so your buying process becomes a lot smoother, just like an open source company. How do you get to a point where the end economic buyer, right? This person could be a C level person. They look down on their org map and realize a lot of the developers are already aware of this solution and raise their hand and wanted to to ask about the solution, right? So I think that's a point both open source and non-open source companies could adopt, right? Whether it's through different marketing, sales, go market strategy or, or product strategy, around. Right? Yeah,
1: definitely. I think that about go-to-market economics is, is very important because I think specifically in that post you're talking about like how even non-open source company can try the, the free trial approach to get some interest and then from that Go out different options to either manage cloud, that kind of thing. But I think that's like a question that pretty specific to the, to the business cell and to the specific my personas, as you should mention.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And again, two points like the devil was always in the details, right? Like, how do you execute that point? It's not just put up your website and be like, hey, here's free trial, but it's more around what's behind the things. How does objection handling work? What kind of clients you want to take on? What kinds of say no to? I think, again, it's a pretty loaded topic, but the takeaway is devils in the details.
1: And then in April 2021, you penned another in-depth article about the open data ecosystem, which is uh, defined by the three principles of openness and diversity. Yeah, just from doing the research on that piece, what trends in the modern open data ecosystem are you most bullish on in the coming years?
2: Yeah. And you mean your podcast is named Datacast, right? So I think that it's a, it's a great name because there's so many really exciting development on the modern data stack. Uh, I would just highlight probably the a, a top few on my mind. I think one is this idea of the rise of data ops, right? Meaning the middle layer of the data stack. And I think that's a result of the fact that now from a bottom layer perspective, the data front, right? They're data like data warehouse. Or the BI tools, right? Whether it's Liquor to Blow, and focus butters. Those two layers are, if you go to a typical Silicon Valley company, it's pretty it's there, right? Like people know what to buy, people they, they have their choices, but they generally buy similar solutions, right? Like whether Snowflake or the ride on some cloud data warehouse. But the form factor is there, right? So once you have your infra and your visualization layer in place, the question becomes. How do you make sure the right data makes it to the end user, right? So that's a data ops component, whether it's data management, data governance, pipelining, right? Like a Matillion-Five trend of the world. So I think the rise of data ops and the newer opportunities that come that makes the whole modern data stack more efficient from a broader trend perspective is uh, is very interesting. I th- and I think secondly, probably I would say this whole idea about the unbundling of BI, business uh, intelligence, so If we go back to the history of BI, 1980s, it really is a problem of people not being able to get a hand on the data in time, right? Because whenever you need a report, you have to call somebody, and this other person have to call the IT person, and the IT person would provision certain data to the end user, right? So you have that problem. And now, fast forward 20, 30 years later, we at a point where self-serve data is the hardest thing, and you can theoretically go and find anything that you wanted. But the issue is sometimes it's a very complex process and people don't know what questions you ask, right? So I think this whole idea about the outbowling of BI is really how do you serve data to the right end user system? Right. So if I were a salesperson, I want to see the right kind of data in Salesforce, not a BI PDF that Tableau produced, right? Or not a dashboard that Tableau produced. If I were a marketing person, I want to see the latest and greatest of my A B testing results within my work system choice, right? Maybe it's HubSpot, maybe it's Mercado, maybe it's something else, not a BI report, right? So how do we see that onboarding process play out? I think that just requires tools that activate certain data, right, operationalize certain data and sitting inside a warehouse and pump it into the right choice of any system. That's not necessarily a BI tool, right? So I, th- I would say that's probably num- number two. And number three, I think it's really just a diversification of form factors from a database standpoint, in my opinion, right? Because... I always go, go back to the point about cost and benefit, right, from a query standpoint, right? The easiest question I ask you is like, why don't you just pump all your data inside Snowflake? Like, why don't you just go to one place for all your data? I think beyond the technical scaling issues, the biggest thing is like cost-benefit, right? Like, why do you need all your data into this very expensive, highly active warehouse? You don't, a lot of times you don't need it, right, there. So that's the drive me kind of value problems like, hey, go to data data lake, right? That's what basically Databricks warehouse pitches. But on the other hand, you're going to have some data you want to have real time, right? So things like Apache Pino, StarTree of the world, they help you achieve a different point on a cost performance curve, right? Because sometimes you're going to pay a little bit more cost per query for a different user experience. So I think those different kinds of data in that helps you achieve different points on a cost performance curve. Those are pretty exciting and those are emerging rapidly as well.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks for going over all those ID, the, the rise data ops, the un- unbundling of this intelligence and diversification of five formats to provide intuition on cost-benefit analysis, right? Those are the key things that you bullish on for the more data stack. Just on that note, that's because we're talking about, because that piece about the, the open data ecosystem. I'm, I'm just curious how does the principle of openness related to all the
2: points that you just mentioned? This whole word about interability, right? Make sure that your tool that could be interval to all the other tools that you have and be future proof as well, which is a big kind of value problem of open source is the fact that even when a commercial vendor goes away, you still have a valuable technology that already plugs in to other technologies. And I would generally say, this is a result of the fact that when you have a more open system, people adopt it more. And when you achieve a certain agile velocity from a community perspective, people start putting your tool on a resume. They're like, hey, I know how to use this because we're the cool kids club or a company feels like this is standard other new emerging tools that we don't even know what look like in the future, they start building their tools with your tool in mind, right? From an open standpoint. So that makes you more future-proof over time. And this whole principle open, again, like I don't think a vendor needs to be open source, but this whole principle of being open, I think it just means that, hey, we, we're more in the ecosystem phase of things, right? In data. Not so much of one vendor captures all. Because look, you look at the last generation of vendors, right? The BI tools used to come with actual data warehouse, right? Underneath. They came with the whole thing. The data warehouse vendors used to come with visualization layers. The, the data ops vendors, like Informatica Talent, they do everything, right? They do all the way from what Five friend does to what Privacera does to what Alation does, right, across the board. But we're seeing this whole modularization of things because I think there's just a lot of benefit of being, one, specialized, but two, also serving deeper needs, right? Not just the, the most surface needs. Because as we get to a point where data professionals and data needs requirements are higher and higher, I think we, we would need more specialized tools for those needs.
1: Yeah. And as, as we talk about interoperability and best of breed solution, that transition super well to my next question. In March 2022, you published another piece explaining why the future AI infrastructure is becoming modular. And yeah, it's definitely super interesting to see the similarities between data infrastructure and, and AI infrastructure, right? As new AI and ML tech vendors emerge. What categories in the AI infrastructure space that you think will have a disproportionately massive impact in the future? And then vice versa, what categories that you think are overhyped?
2: Yeah, yeah. it's always hard to talk about what what categories overhyped versus underhyped or what's real, what's not real. I think when you look at the AI ML landscape thing, the one thing that anybody would acknowledge is, okay, they're here, right? They're arrived. And this is a trend that's going to just become bigger and stronger over time. Whether it's one year, two years, or five years, it's so hard to say nobody knows, but they're here to stay 100%, right? But on the other end, you also realize, build a company, the company has to make money. There has to be real demand on the other side of the funnel. So what I learned is a lot of the categories I put out is real. But consolidation is bond gap, right? It doesn't make sense. to have seven or eight vendors going after the same point problem. So I think there's bond consolidation. I would say like people always overestimate the near term and underestimate the long-term, right? I think I remember when we were talking about cruise back in 2013, 2014, right? We're like, oh, self-driving cars around the corner it's going to be twenty 2018. We'll have self-driving cars around and now everybody's like, oh, we realized actually self-driving car wouldn't come around. But the underestimating part, which is super interesting given the rise of deep learning and a lot of other things, is just the fact that I think this technology would play out, the whole AI ML space will play out much faster than people realized once we hit the bottom of this hype cycle, right? Once we were like super excited, now they're at the 12, they're like, what is this? And then I think like at that point is when but to bounce back and hit a pretty, pretty fast, active velocity. And for my investment purview, I would say things are generally closer to the practitioners, right? ML practitioners. It could be a data scientist. It could be a data engineer that focuses on ML. It could be a very technical data analyst who, who knows Python and who knows to run, do their work within a notebook. Those are the folks who are going to dictate what the AIML tool chain look like in the future, right? You back that out, you think about, okay, what kind of tooling those folks adopt, right? And there are different form factors, right? It could manifest itself in a very popular open source tool that people already adopt. It could manifest in the sense of a very mission critical tool in development and production process that people have to adopt uh, and gravitate towards. But ultimately, I think the way this plays out, it's going to be similar to how DevOps play out, right? Like it was a small thing at first. And now people are like, oh, got to be CICD and standardize on the DevOps best practice. I think that's what's going to happen here in IML. And we're not there yet, but from what I could see, all the signs are pointing to the fact that we're getting there. So that's where my excitement comes from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, related to the main idea of that piece is that. The best solution going to emerge for different phase of the ML lifecycle, and back to that part about interoperability again. Just from your analysis on on that piece, what what are some of the things that you have seen for different ML tooling vendors to collaborate better together? Just like how that already play out in the data ecosystem.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to require certain leaders, right? Like if you look at the modern data stack, right? Obviously, there's Snowflake and DBT and certain vendors that put a flag on and be like, "Hey, we want to build ecosystem here." I think it's going to take certain vendors to take leadership in the yeah. ecosystem and be in more of a stronger thought leadership position to do all these things. I think it's also again to my point is like end users are going to roll with their feet and fingers, right? They're going to pick whatever tools that they want to use. So. I think the way this plays out from an interoperability perspective, really the tools that people want and need are going to be here. And the tools that people don't want and need, regardless of how much marketing noise that you make, are not going to be here, right? And again, it's hard to have a silver bullet on, on what's going to be needed and what's not. But from a venture perspective, I, I look a lot at what the NML practitioners doing.
1: Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. And also, you mentioned uh, in your previous answer that the future of MML, if for us, is going to look very much similar to DevOps, right? And so, you released another piece just a few months ago, it's meaning the dynamic evolution the software development life cycle. Would you mind highlighting some of the key trends propelling the future of DevOps presented in that piece?
2: Yeah, there's again, <laughs> there's very low question. There's a ton of very interesting trends. I would say just from a vector standpoint, right? One is, hey, we are probably 10 years into the DevOps process, right? The, the whole SDLC today, from a component perspective, is quite mature, right? Everybody has a Git system. Everybody has a CI system. Everybody has a CE system. So now one interesting factor of innovation is like, how do you optimize this whole SDL, SDLC, right? That means how do you, Infuse some of the modern ML techniques into the SDLC to streamline it even better, right? To make developers' life even more efficient over time. That's probably one pretty interesting trend, right? Like, I think the one that everybody knows and, and could highlight is GitHub Copilot, right? Like, just help you as a developer to write a certain code. But there are things, right? Like, the manner of work the developers do that... Certain tools could definitely abstract them from, right? And it doesn't have to be true ML techniques, but I think ML and SLC is a pretty big driver here to streamline the whole process even more. So that's probably trend one. Trend two, I would say generally like supply chain security, right? Again, nobody likes to do extra things for security. If you are a CISO or chief information security officer at a company, the last thing, Or the least effective thing you want to do is turn around to the developer and be like, hey, you should write the code in a certain way so it helps me do my job, right? That's never going to fly, never going to work. So how do we find a balance between security and efficiency and find more tools that help organizations fulfill their goals of deploying on a weekly, a lot of times daily basis, right? For some of the more enterprise folks who used to be on waterfall scheduling and developing. Those are super interesting. I would say supply chain security in general. I think, yeah, lastly, I'll probably highlight just a point about but development environments, right? The way developers work, right? Today, I would say the majority of folks still develop locally and then you merge your code and then you run tests and whatnot, right? What if we have a really great cloud development experience uh, on step one, right? And their vendors should take more of a radical approach, and the renders will take more of a gradual approach. But I think over time, we're going to see more and more cases of just developers being able to develop, do more of their cl- work in cloud in a more standardized environment. They just work right away. So I think those are the three main trends.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having all those. Increasing usage of machine learning in SDLC, the, the software security supply chain, as well as next, next generation. Development environments. And I'll be sure to include all these blog posts on the show notes so business can have a trend to that deeper, and read more about some of the parts on this piece. But just one final note before we move into the final closing segment is yeah. that like you this different focus from security to infrastructure to data analytics to ML, right? And these are completely like so different domain, different sectors. I'm sure there's a lot of learning curve that you have to like do with yourself. Just from a personal professional development part of you like how did you get up to speed when uh, doing research for a new industry
2: yeah i would say again it's never one day and never one approach but i think i feel very privileged that my job basically pays me to talk to other people and a lot of people i talk to are most likely smarter than me way smarter than me on one or two facets right like could be somebody who's being practicing security for 20 years could be somebody who's a luminary in the DevOps space. So I think having those conversations really helped me drill down sort of mental models I had from doing my own research or reading and whatnot. But I think it's really a combination of just a lot of hard work accumulate over time. And then at certain points of time, you talk to the right person and somehow this clicks, right? It's like how to learn to ride a bicycle or learn to swim, right? Like at some point, you've done a lot of things, some right, some wrong, and certainly one day everything clicks. And for me, I think the clicking part usually happens when I talk to, again, a certain person or a certain company that I'm excited about. And new insights come up and like, oh, wow, it actually makes sense. I connect all the dots from my mind. So again, I think the process really, one, you have to always do hard work, right? Like whether it's reading, meta learning, right? Like surfing mm-hmm. on Hacker News or on Twitter mm-hmm. and whatnot. And you came up with a bunch of pockets of knowledge that might seem to be irrelevant or unrelated, but at some point you still have to go out there and talk to people. And educate yourself as a process. And at some point, the more you accumulate, the more points you have, the more valuable they would become, right? And you know, when you hit a certain critical mass, everything is going to click for you. And yeah, afterwards, you just want a little more, right? If you're like me, you just it's always rabbit hole. I would say you can always go okay. down even more.
1: Yeah, it's very an iterative process where you can collect more and more data points and to to form. That's not what I think afterwards. So Casper, this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, then you can provide quick answers for listeners. Number one, name a couple of resources for people to, to learn more about the venture capital industry.
2: Yeah. I would say there are one is probably books. There are some really good books that were written on this topic. The most recent one is a book called The Power Laws, a history book, like history, like you can just read the book and get a good sense of how the industry works. I think secondly, it's probably some of the matter learning I mentioned, right? You go on Twitter, you go on Hacker News, you follow some newsletter, and just learn gradually, right? Like every day, I spend five minutes learning about this. And at some point, things are going to click for you. And three, I'll just encourage you to, if you have some to say reach out to certain VCs and, and drop them a lengthy message, send a code email, right, never hurts. And I think most people were willing to probably spend five or 10 minutes of their day talking to you about answers and regressions questions you have.
1: Yeah. I think that's rare to back to the part you mentioned in Hawaii earlier in our chat when during your time at Berkeley, you learn about the power of the, the open sensitivity culture of the Valley and how Exactly. That, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. And that's the beauty of Valley, right? I don't think, I don't think that flies in New York or a- anywhere else. You know? uh,
1: number two, uh, name one book that you recommend for people to cultivate better foresight.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I because I saw your question beforehand, this, this whole idea of foresight and it's, yeah, they, it's so hard to cultivate better foresight. I would say a book I really like is, it's called Engines That Move Markets. Mm. It combines history and tact, right? So we, goes back a couple hundred years and look at the rise of railroads, electric light, the radio. And what you find is history often rhymes, right? Like it, it really is, it's how things work, right? You, you hit that whole hype cycle, right? You probably, at first, something is super interesting and it's overlooked and ignored. And some crazily brave entrepreneurs, seemingly crazy entrepreneurs take advantage of that and then drive the market up. And then market overheat as just doesn't fail, right? It always overheats. And then you hit the trowel and then the next wave comes. But it's a book around just studying the rise and fall of all these other prior technologies like railroads, like telegraph and understanding the economic patterns behind it. So that's one I'd probably really recommend. And I learned a lot about just the power expectations from this book, right? Because some. Sometimes reality is very important in substance and it's always going to win out in the long run. But expectations about how technology moves or to a bigger topic like inflation is extremely powerful. And that book covers it pretty well.
1: Yeah, we learn a lot about the, the future just, just based on reading from the past, right?
2: Yeah. This is super relevant
1: thing you mentioned way earlier in our chat is that you have a your history buff. And this sounds reading about history something that you do your own in your own mm. leisure.
2: Yeah, that's something I enjoy. And I just, I enjoy things that have already happened. And, you know, it feels like I anchor myself to something I could pattern myself after.
1: Yeah. And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early career VC's on Twitter. Like, what would you tweet about?
2: Yeah, I would say, again, like, I'm not in a position, I don't think I'm in a position yet to give advice or... or Suggestions to other VCs, uh, or other junior VCs, but I would say, again, to my prior point about being accountable for the result, right? And it just means have a share in not only success of a company, but also failures of a company, right? And it's super intuitive, but it's much harder to do, right? I would say is how do you help founders go through some tough times, right? How do you really be there and be demanding, but supportive to a founder. I think keeping that balance and be present during those moments are probably something I'm still learning, spending a lot of time home but something that I think is a realization that luckily folks here at Sapphire taught me early on is this whole idea about just not only sure success, but also the failures and setbacks of a company. So that's probably the tweet I would have.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's a great way to end our chat. Just be around the fathers, not just at the uptime, but also to the outtime. So, Casper, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your whole career, starting from starting in UC Berkeley, getting involved with the startup scene, the time working in investment banking, transition into venture capital, so five Ventures, a mutual investment focused on security, enterprise infrastructure, and data and analytics, different tactics on how to stand up, prove value as a junior investor, as well as supporting your portfolio companies, and generally, like some of the top leadership articles related to the cloud, open, better style, yeah, infrastructure, as well as the future develops. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today into the show notes. So listeners have a chance to take a look, follow, and reach out and learn more about some of your work, as well as the general high-level uh, things that Sapphire is doing. Yeah, I really enjoy our conversation, time.
2: I hope you have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks, James. And thanks for reaching out. And I really enjoy our conversation as well. Awesome.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaylee.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.